So today we're going to be reading from Hebrews 4. We have an awesome Frontlines team that's just walking to the front right now. They have a bunch of Bibles. So if you forgot your Bible or you don't have one and would like one, just put your hand up and they will give you one. If you don't have one um, at home, feel free to take this one home with you um, and then we will just get more and keep giving them out. So again, it's Hebrews 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 13. So Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the, oh, sorry, um, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thought and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is uh, good to be together today, and it's uh, such a joy. Now, some of you maybe don't realize this, because how would you know unless you're on this, the side of like knowing how many Bibles we actually order, but we run out of Bibles uh, fairly frequently, and either a few of you are just laughing because you've got this enormous stack at home now, or... Or there's a number of people that actually do visit us, and maybe you're here today and you don't have one. And so again, this is our gift to you. Uh, so it's pretty exciting that we can provide uh, Bibles for people. And as I said, we get to do that pretty frequently. We're constantly ordering them. So it's a really, really good thing. So be encouraged every week as you hear somebody say, and if you don't have one, take it home. Because people are legitimately taking them home, which is really, really good. Well, today, I just want to be straight up and honest with you. I'm, I'm terrible at what we're going to discuss today. And uh, I actually started some counseling this week. Now, I'm, I'm confessing that to you not because I want you to come up to me afterwards and we can break down our counseling experience. I'm just telling you because I've started. And what I've realized about myself is that I prioritize in my life uh, intellect or cognition or thinking. 
And when I do that, which some of us would be like, what's wrong with thinking? What's wrong with all that? What I do is that I diminish other things like the emotional health of a human being or sometimes just physical health, calming yourself down. And so what I've realized about myself as it relates to the topic specifically today of rest, or not just necessarily finding rest by taking a vacation but by, or by having a weekend, the actual depth of rest where even as your life is continuing, there is a deeper position of your soul that exists at a very peaceful and restful place. And if I could confess anything to you this morning, it would be that I am terrible. I struggle at finding that deep rest. That even when I break from work, I still struggle with working. And so what I want to help us do today, uh, as I've confessed this to you, is hopefully walk with us in this struggle. Because I would suggest that probably many of us, I don't think I'm alone in this, actually struggle with deep, meaningful rest. As I said, the rest beneath the work. The rest that is deep rest. And the reason that I, I think I'm not alone is because if, if you ask somebody these days how they're doing, uh, most people say, I'm busy. And I think many of us would, would probably say that when we say that we're busy, what we're essentially saying is, I have a normal life like hopefully you do. Because if you were to find somebody and you were to ask them, how are you doing? And they were to say, well, you know, life's really slow right now, um, you know, pretty bored, you'd, you'd think there was something wrong with them. I remember one time I actually did a message that was called, Busy is the New Normal where, you know, what we really should be just telling people is, well, my life is like yours. It's busy. So it's just, you know, completely normal. But if busy, if what we're going to do in living our lives as a busy person, as a busy culture, what we're going to find is that the need for work, or the need for rest, I should say, is going to be greater. And so you can now study, and you do research and study in our world around uh, the rise in anxiety, things like depression, uh, the breakdown of relationships, And I would suggest that what has happened is that, now not always, of course, there is a clinical side, but I would say that for some, the reality of a lack of deep rest, the lack of an ability to stop, but not only in the stopping, actually finding deep rest of the soul. And so here this morning, our orator, our pastor in Hebrews, is writing to this culture to suggest that a rest is available to you. And not just a vacation, not just a weekend off, but a deep, meaningful soul rest. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, I want it. If it's to be had, I'd love to live in that reality. How can we find it? How can we grasp hold of this meaningful, deep rest? And so this is the point that our orator, our author, is trying to make here in chapter 4 as he has been building upon what he has already begun to say in the beginning parts of chapter 3. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through, if you are new to us as far as our gatherings are concerned, uh, what we do here is we study the Bible and we go through line by line because we want to know what it means. And as we're going to find out later in, the, later in today's message, it's the Bible is an active living sword. And so if this thing is going to help me understand myself better, it's going to cut to my heart, I need to understand understand it in order to allow it to continue to do this in my life. And so let's go to verse 1 of chapter 4. Brigida has already read it for us, but we're going to go through it and begin to dissect it and help us understand what our author is suggesting and how crazy his suggestion actually is. He writes, Therefore, 
Now, as we've said before, the word therefore is building upon a case of where the author has already begun. And the case that he is building on is what he has started in verse 7 of chapter 3 in saying and reflecting upon the Israelites' experience in the wilderness. So he writes, therefore, what we've seen here from the Israelite journey, that the recalling of Psalm 95, while the promise of entering his rest still stands or is still available, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. What is he saying? There's a rest available, but there's some of us that have failed to have reached that rest. And I think many of us in this room would say, I'm one of them. I'm failing to feel this deep rest in my soul. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them, the them being the Israelites in the wilderness. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with all of those who listened. Now, part of us today might be inquisitive to say, what's, what's the author talking about? What's the author reflecting on? And for, so the, for the sake of understanding what the author is reflecting on, I want you to go with me, if you do have a Bible in hand, to Numbers chapter 14. And in Numbers chapter 14, there is a distinct retelling or a telling of the Israelite story in which they come essentially to a climax of their lack of faith and trust in God. Uh, if you know the story in any way, you know that God has been promised since Abraham that God would bless the Israelite nation with, with land, with dominance, with an ability to know that they are his children, that he has blessed them specifically. And so in Numbers 14, what we've been reading in the narrative up to that point is that the Israelites have sent 12 spies into this land to spy it out. It's a land that you would think we're spying it out, but the great thing about it is God has promised us this land, so therefore spying it is just a matter of taking stock, figuring out what it's actually going to be like to do life there, rather than spying it out to decide if we should go and do it or not. Like the point was not to decide as we go in as spies, is are we actually going to go? No, God's made it clear. You're going to go. I'm going to give it to you. So the result of what happens with the spies should actually stop us in our track, should actually shock us. And in Numbers 14, verses 1 to 4, we read, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now why are they so saying, like, why are they weeping? Like, what's going on? You know, for me, the emotionally inept one. What are they crying about? Well, they're crying. They're weeping because 10 of the spies of the 12 say the people are huge. They're big. Now, um, this is in a day and age where physical dominance, specifically physical size, military size, is scary. Right? Like, I'm not thinking, like, how big's my neighbor? Because when we get in a brawl later on, i got to figure out if I'm going to be able to take him. But in this environment, military span or, or size of human being is, is scary. And so the Israelites are thinking, we are small, they are big. God brought us all this way out of Egypt, only to let us get taken out by the land that he promised us. And so they're distraught. 
They think that Moses has heard wrong. Why do they believe Moses heard wrong? It's because they're like, let's choose another leader and go back to Egypt. Now, remember what Egypt is, right? Slavery. We actually read in the Exodus account that it wasn't just regular like nine to five slavery. They were being pushed to the brink of physical exertion where they weren't able to keep up. Yet here they are reflecting upon what could happen if they go forward and saying, maybe Egypt would be better. Maybe God lied. Clearly Moses has. Now, think about it again, okay? Another contextual reality. They've seen the parting of the Red Sea. Think about that for a second. If you were to witness something so spectacular and supernatural, you would think that the inclination of the self is to say, I trust whatever did that, no matter what happens. But these people are no. No. We don't want to go. We don't want to trust God. We'd rather go trust what we had in Egypt. There's significant consequences to this fear, to this choice not to trust God. And the first consequence we read about in Numbers 14, verses 21 to 23. And the consequence is that everyone's going to die who witnessed God's miracles in Egypt. But truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men, this is God speaking, who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. Now, some of us might be like, well, that's, that's pretty rough. It doesn't seem fair. But, but think about the reality. They, if they're not going to trust God related to what they experienced in the signs and miracles of the plagues and also the, the parting of the Red Sea, and if they're not going to trust that, why would we be led to believe that they're going to trust God now going into the future? So it's probably better that they don't experience the promised land because it's going to be perpetual disobedience as they go forward. And so the consequence is that for all of you that have seen the incredible things that I have done, you're not going to get to go to the promised land because you've continued to show a lack of trust in me. And then the other consequence is going to be 40 years of wilderness wandering. Numbers 14, 33 to 34, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness. And so the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day. You shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. Now, it's, it should be noted again, another contextual reality is that in this time and age, just simply wandering in a wilderness is not a great defense strategy, Right? It would be wise to set up shops somewhere, build some walls. And so they're thinking, wilderness? Wandering? Really? A direct consequence. Because if they aren't going to choose to trust God in the immediate, they're going to wander in their decisions. As we know and experience for ourselves. Now you would think, did they learn from these consequences and put their trust in God? Certainly after these consequences, you would think that forward motion, they're going to trust in God now. Ezekiel, however, chapter 20, verses 13 and then 21 to 22, recalls back how the children of Israel did. 
But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They didn't live by my statutes. They despised my ordinances, which if a person observes, he'll live by them. They greatly profaned my Sabbaths, but they rebelled against me. They didn't live according to my statutes, observe my ordinances, or practice them, by which a person shall live. What's, what's Ezekiel saying? Even given the consequences, they continued to not trust me. So what is, what is the challenge for us today? What's to be applied? What is the order trying to help us understand? He's trying to help us understand that for all of us, the decision of entering God's rest is available through faith in Jesus. This is what he says, Therefore, if the promise of entering his rest still stands, how do we enter that rest? Through faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying make the decision to trust Jesus as the Israelites could have done in trusting in God for their salvation, so you must trust Jesus for your salvation. If the Israelites could trust God for the work that he was going to do for them, you too can do that. Don't do what they did. Choose to trust God. Choose to trust his work. Place your faith and belief in him. We must do this. Let's continue. For we who have believed enter that rest. Believe what? We'll believe in Jesus and his work that he has done for us. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Once again, our author is quoting from Psalm 95 and is condemning the wilderness generation for their failure to trust the promise of God. Verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his work. The author is now connecting the story of Israel to the creation narrative. This says God rested on the seventh day. Now, did God need to rest because he was tired? No. He rested to enjoy, to look at what he had created, to find beauty in it, and to know that what he had done was good, and that what he had created was good. So why the connection? Our author is saying that as our God rests, so we can rest. And the opportunity and the invitation for rest has been available since this very day. Verse 5, and again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and who those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, as we just learned from the wilderness. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying that through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear your voice, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What's the application of what the author, he's applying what he said earlier. He's condemning the wilderness experiences and he's challenging the readers to respond to God's promise of faith. But he's also saying, respond today. He doesn't want his hearers to put it off. Now, just a reminder of what these readers are, and hearers are going through. They're a group of people that are under significant persecution. They're being challenged to turn away from their faith in Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is choose today to not dwindle. Don't go away. Choose to put your faith in Jesus. Find your rest there. He goes on. For if Joshua had given them rest, verse 8, would God not have spoken of another day later on? Now the question must be, well, why are we suddenly now bringing up Joshua? 
But think about it. In chapter 1, we had angels. In chapter 2, we had a little bit more angels and their superiority. Then in chapter 3, the superiority of Moses. Well, who comes after Moses? Joshua. And so the challenge repeatedly here is, who are you going to place the superior place in your life? Who is going to take that position? And so for the Israelites, well, who are the ones that were our most valuable leaders in the past? Well, Moses was pretty good. Joshua led us into the promised land. So maybe it's Joshua that will offer us the rest. But no, Joshua could not have offered them rest. Only God can offer them rest. Rest must be found somewhere else. So then, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Praise God for this. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now this is key. The Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God is the message of the gospel, which is this, that Jesus provides everything necessary for us to rest through his work on our behalf. Let me repeat that again. Jesus provides everything necessary for us to rest through his work on our behalf. What this means is that you and I understand that many of us are living our lives to legitimize our existence. We want to be legitimate. We want other people to think of our lives and say they live a legitimate life. It's why many of us in social media or in other places, we're trying to show people what we're all about. We're trying to show people, look at my life. It's meaningful. It's valuable. We want to legitimize our existence. We don't want people to think of us that we're a waste of skin. And so we try to legitimize ourselves. So even, now think about this. If you're trying to legitimize yourself, that goes deeper than just taking a break. Right? Because if I'm trying to legitimize myself, I'm going to be working maybe Monday to Friday. But that desire to legitimize myself doesn't take a break on Saturday and Sunday. It says, I'm not being productive right now. So how am I going to show the world that I'm still productive? That I'm still a valuable person? This is the rest that the author, that the order is telling us is available through Jesus Christ. It's trusting is his work on your behalf, his ability to legitimize your life, his ability to give you righteousness. This is what we sang in the song, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and righteousness. We sang that. What is the author of the song saying? Your righteousness, your right standing with God, your legitimization is not found in yourself. It's found in nothing but the blood of Jesus. And unless you can rest in that, you're going to spend your entire life trying to legitimize yourself. So maybe your objection is, because there's always an objection, right? I trust Jesus, but I don't feel this ultimate rest. I trust Jesus, but I don't feel this ultimate rest. And the question is, well, why don't I feel this ultimate rest? Have you ever been there? Maybe you're you're feeling weighed down by that today. It's like, well, I just lay it on there, Pastor Matt. Thanks. I wish I felt the rest that you're speaking about. And as I shared earlier, I wish I felt the rest I'm telling I was speaking about. So how does this work? Well, here's what I think it means. And I think the author backs this up, is that the quick answer is that there's a two-stage rest. Now you might mean like, two-stage rest, what are you talking about? Let me try to put words to what I'm saying. 
what kind of rest are we ultimately talking about? Well, number one, it's a rest now through Jesus' work on our behalf. This rest is pursuing contentment in Jesus, which is a daily step of faith, regardless of the work that is left to do. It's finding satisfaction and legitimacy in Jesus in the here and now. What this means is that faith in Jesus that leads to rest now is more than hearing and going through an intellectual exercise. It's actually a daily decision. Now, some of you are identifying with me here, right? Where each day you need to make the decision, am I going to put my faith and trust in Jesus today? Am I going to trust in his work on my behalf? Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29 says this. This is Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's, what's he saying there? Take my yoke upon you. Take the yoke on you, off of yourself, and put mine upon you. Trust my work on your behalf. He trades places with us and gives us a new yoke and a new burden. But on this side of heaven, there is an imbalance in our physical, emotional, and intellectual capacities. And we must lean into all of them, as I'm beginning to discover, to strive for this rest. So what this means on this side of heaven is that anything other than Jesus that we look to for rest will repeatedly fall short, but the temptation to look to those things will repeatedly be there. So where are some of the things and the places that many of us look to for rest, to find meaning, to find legitimization? Well, as I've already mentioned, social media, but social media simply points to a desire for self to legitimize self, right? We want to legitimize ourselves through maybe it's wisdom and understanding. I'm really smart. I do this. I'm really wise, I think. So therefore, honor and respect me. I'm thoughtful. I have good intellectual capacity. I can have a meaningful life. What's interesting about Jesus' invitation that we just read about in Matthew 11 is that just prior to that invitation that many of us skip over, Jesus clarifies who's actually going to be able to receive this invitation. He writes in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. That's clarifying, right? That what I'm about to say, the invitation that I'm about to give is going to be impossible for the wise and understanding to actually comprehend and practice in faith. So what's he saying? Who's going to actually respond to the invitation? Little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to, my, to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. So the challenge? Be like little kids. Be like little kids who desperately need a parent. Uh, as some of you know, um, Nixon has been struggling at bedtime. And so this has been uh, a challenge <laughs> because, you know, we're selfish individuals as parents, and so we want our night. Uh, we want you to be in bed by 7, 7.30 so we can just hang out and, like, 
take it easy for the rest of the night, right? Well, uh, at the advice of my counselor, she said, well, why don't you try a few different methods to help him, help him deal with his, his good night thing? And one of them was, why don't you give him stickers uh, for every night that he accomplishes going to bed on his own? Like, put a little calendar in his room, and every night that he's able to go to bed on his own, give him a sticker. And then at the end of the, the th- if he gets three stickers, Andrea, because he's really desiring to spend time with more, more time with Andrea, Andrea, why don't you take him to uh, get ice cream? So we told Nixon at the front end of the three days that, Nixon, we're, we're going to give you ice cream at the end of these three days if you can go to bed on his own. Now, it was hilarious because yesterday we were on the phone uh, with his nana and opa, and so he said, because after the three days, he says to them, he says, and you need to know the context to get it, but he says, nana and opa, I don't need mommy and daddy anymore. <laughs> and, you're, and I was just like waking up. It was very, very early. You're like, what do you mean you don't need us anymore? And of course he was speaking about, I don't need them to go to bed anymore. And we're all like, yeah, the best. But here's the thing. Nixon still does need us. But his exercise of saying, I don't need, is somehow related to, I think, what we do as we get older. Right? Where we think, I've got it covered now. I can do it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who's going to be able to hear that invitation? Little children. So it's not going to be through ourself and our wisdom and understanding. How about our power, our desire for power, status, or influence, or the accomplishments of our work? But the question we must ask about our desire for status and influence is that when will it ever be enough? You might say, well, I just need to get to this point in my career, and then it will all be over. Then I'll find ultimate rest. Good luck. Or how about a moralism? I think many of us who were raised in religious environments, we try to legitimize ourselves through works righteousness or what's called moralism or religiosity. That if I obey God more, then I'll be a better human being. If I participate in a church community and I participate in all the different facets of the church community, then like I'm good. I'm legitimized myself, not only this church community, but to the world because I'm doing a lot of good things. But it simply shows you that you can put your faith not in Jesus, but in activity to legitimize. Human structures and systems other than self, religion, churches, or some of us, if we're honest enough, there's things that we're turning to in our life to legitimize ourselves or to get rest that's not ultimately providing the rest that we want it to, like numbing techniques of substance, alcohol, marijuana, media, relationships we can look to to legitimize ourselves, whether that's marriage, children, or deep, meaningful friendships. We look to these things to provide a deep, meaningful rest that they ultimately cannot provide. But then there's still a second stage of rest that awaits us. And this is what our order is getting at in verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest. So what's the second stage of rest? It's ultimate rest later on when Jesus Christ returns. We read this in Revelation 21, 3 to 5, verses 3 to 5. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be, them, be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is ultimate rest. This is the ultimate rest one day that we look forward to as followers of Jesus who put our faith in him when he will return. And all of the things that wear at us, that continue to fight 
for our attention, for us to fight our legitimacy, will be done. And we can ultimately rest as God the Father rested on the seventh day of creation. Now you might be saying, okay, I hear you, but so what? How does this affect my day-to-day life? And the order anticipates this. And so he writes in verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall short by the same disobedience. Now, I don't always quote Greek words because some of us, when we hear a Greek word, are like, I can never read the Bible because I don't know the Greek. There's enough things online, actually. You could probably get to the Greek. But here's the Greek word because I think it helps and clarifies something that we need to acknowledge. The Greek word here used for strive strive, is spodasimen, which means to do something with intense effort and motivation, to devote serious energy to, to be zealous and eager for. So what what does this mean? When the author writes, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It literally means we must strive to enter God's rest. We must work to feel rest. Now you're like, what do you mean work to find rest? We must work to be reminded that our legitimacy for our lives is not found in all of the things around us or within ourselves that our self looks to for that legitimization. We must recognize that in order to fight against that, it demands work. It demands striving. It demands effort, energy, zealousness. It is the sort of thing, I remember hearing a pastor say one time that he was going to take a summer to purposefully be not busy. And so people would come to him and say, what are you doing this summer? I'm purposefully being not busy. I'm purposefully trying to keep my schedule wide open. I'm purposely trying not to fill my whole week and calendar with appointments. I'm trying to simply breathe. I'm trying to simply trust that the work that I do, if I believe in it too much, will not provide what I think it's actually promising me, that I need to trust in Jesus' work, that his work will outweigh and go on longer than my own. And so I need to trust in what he has not only done now for me, but eternally for me. And why we must strive, well, the consequences are laid right there, is that we might fall short by disobedience. We're not going to enter the rest. We're going to die in the wilderness. We're going to die apart from Jesus. We're not going to have our faith found in him. And so therefore, eternally, we're not going to want to be with him because we don't put our trust in him. So don't fall short. The second consequence is that the struggle is real. Right? The struggle it is real. It is far easier to work at pursuing personal safety, security, and salvation. Therefore, it is a daily striving. A guy by the name of Steve uh, Palferman writes this, Train for godliness because the devil hates you. That's, that's just straightforward, right? <laughs> Train for godliness because the devil hates you. He wants you to believe that it's all about you. So what accompanies us as we strive and how do we do this striving? Verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So how do we strive? The word of God. The entirety of divine revelation 
written and incarnate. The orator, as we've seen before, clearly has a high view of the scriptures. He points out the characteristics. It's living and active. He's speaking to the enduring vitality of God's word. Because God speaks, scripture speaks. It is one of the primary ways God speaks to us. And notice he writes, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, I'm not wielding swords. But I read that and I think of something like from Lord of the Rings, right? Going into battle, sharpening the sword. And a sharp sword is going to be invasive, And in this case, the word of God is like a wielded scalpel in order to perform spiritual surgery in our hearts. It doesn't just want your activity. It wants the intentions of your activity. And then in verse 13, maybe this should unsettle us more than simply the word of God. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So how do we strive? We recognize that God sees. That God himself sees us. Now, I don't know about you and how comfortable you are in your nakedness. Most people uh, that I've at least met aren't, are, are pretty uh, not comfortable with just being naked all the time. Unless they're in the privacy of their own homes, of course, right? And even then, you're kind of like, is anyone looking in the window? Um, But think about the, the nature of the language. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees through you. So while everybody else might be convinced of your moralism, while everyone else might be convinced of well, their Instagram makes them look incredible. They have legitimacy. God the Father sees through your Instagram account and he sees your heart. So strive to enter his rest. And how do we do that? We put our faith in Jesus Christ. So a response. A couple of questions. Do you want this rest now? Start with that. Do you want this rest now? And if you want this rest now, it's going to demand a couple of things. One, it's going to be saying, I want to put my faith in Jesus right now. And this is for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus before, but need to be reminded that at the same time, I know that part of striving is saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust you today. Because I didn't, I didn't yesterday. I'm going to trust you today. But I thank you that your grace transcends my ability and understanding. So I'm going to trust you today. And then do you want this rest eternally? Now, if yes, the invitation is available and ready. And if no, I would simply ask, where are you finding rest or legitimacy? And does it promise eternal security? Does it see through you at your heart? Because God himself sees through you and sees your heart, sees your intentions, sees your motivation, sees your desire for rest. And he knows on what foundation it lies. And it's not the built on the foundation of submitting and trusting in his work rather than in your own. Then he will say, you never knew me and you may not enter the promised land. But if we place our trust in Jesus, we will begin to experience now and we have the promise of eternal rest.
where there'll be no more desire to legitimize ourselves. If you want to legitimize yourself, you're not going to want heaven because nobody's going to be paying attention to you. They're going to be paying attention to Jesus. So what's the lesson for us now? To experience heaven, to experience in Guelph as it is in heaven, it demands that we point to Jesus, that we don't try to legitimize ourselves, that we point to Christ because the only foundation we're standing upon. I want to invite you this morning as we respond in worship, I invite you to come to the front. There'll be people with white lanyards here that would love to pray with you, uh, to encourage you through prayer, maybe to challenge you with a question or with a word. If you've heard from the Lord something today that you believe is necessary for our community, I'd invite you to come speak to me or to Pastor James, and we'd love to go over that with you. But let's respond to Jesus now. Let's ask for those of us in this room that have declared faith in Jesus, maybe today is a redeclaration of faith now, of finding rest now. And if you're a weary soul, come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, for he shall give you rest. But remember to come as a little child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we don't need to live the rat race life of trying to legitimize ourselves. But Lord, some of us are living that way. And Lord, like the Israelites in the wilderness, we're trying to find in faith and trust in ourselves, and not ultimately in you. So I pray, Jesus, that you would stop us in our tracks, that the urgency of this message, that as long as it is called today, that we might enter your rest. God, I know that for me, I'd love to just intellectually build this all. And so if I've helped in this way, I pray that it would be to your glory and to your name and to not my own. But Lord, I pray that the reality of who we are as physical beings and just needing to slow down, the reality that we are as emotional beings, that we just need to express and experience the emotion that we're sitting in and therefore knowing where we can invite you in. So thank you, Jesus. I thank you that you've done everything necessary for our salvation. God, may we trust you today. Amen.